Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Erwin Chemerinsky and Howard Gilman, authors of the new book, The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks. Erwin, let's start off with you. Could you please tell my listeners um, who you are and how you came to co-author this book? I'm the dean of the law school at UC Berkeley. In terms of writing the book, I think we are on the verge, more precisely said, in the midst of a major change from the Supreme Court with regard to the religion clauses. Starting in the 1940s, the Supreme Court said that the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment is to be understood is creating a wall separating church and state. This isn't a phrase from liberal law professors. It comes from Thomas Jefferson in the 18th century. However, now we have five justices on the court who reject the idea of a wall separating church and state. They believe that the government violates the Establishment Clause only if it literally coerces religious participation. So they're going to allow any religious symbols on government property, religious presence at government events, religious symbols on government property. At the same time, the Supreme Court has said for decades that there's no basis under the Free Exercise Clause for an exemption from a general law. In fact, in 1990, Justice Scalia wrote the opinion for the court saying that you can't have a religious exemption based on free exercise religion so long as a law that applies to everyone and wasn't motivated by desire to interfere with religion. We've already seen from the Roberts Court that they're very inclined to want to give religious exceptions from general laws, including laws privileging discrimination, laws requiring that employers provide insurance that includes contraceptives. And so the reason we wanted to write the book was to describe what's going on in the Supreme Court, but also very much to criticize it and talk about why it's undesirable to interpret the religion clauses in this way. And Howard, can you please introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what the first signs were that started to alarm you about the current Supreme Court's attitude towards the religion clauses. Yeah, thanks, Lee. So uh, I'm the uh, chancellor of the University of California, Irvine campus, also professor of uh, law, political science and history. Erwin and I know each other a long time. We wrote a book a couple of years ago on free speech on campus. We've been talking about these issues uh, for a while. There were really two things I think that we had a real sense of urgency about. One, you know, when we were growing up, the court was using the Establishment Clause to break down decades-long connections between public institutions and the Protestant religious establishment. We can remember a time when people would uh, grow up and in public school have to uh, start the day with a Christian prayer. The court, through most of our lifetime, began to notice that it was much more important to understand the great diversity of religion in the country, not to allow the government to identify with one particular religious sect. But we saw over the last couple of years that that sense of separation has been breaking down uh, by uh, the conservative uh, justices. More to the point, over the last few years, we've also noticed under the Free Exercise Clause that while historically you could think of it as a shield to protect religious minorities against the animus of the community, the last few years, the court is turning that shield into a sword that is being used by politically powerful religious sects to actually violate laws that are designed to protect other people. So that now, for the first time, the court is articulating a vision of the Free Exercise Clause 
that is permitting people to harm other people, harm people that otherwise would be entitled to workplace benefits or health insurance or the protections of anti-discrimination law. So we, we felt a real sense of urgency that we, we thought that this is the wrong direction. And uh, we wanted to not only help people understand the different ways of thinking about the religion clauses, but more importantly, to suggest what we think a better path forward would be. And to back up for just a second, the religion clauses, the, the two that you both have brought up, are the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Erwin, could you let any listeners who may not be familiar with what those two clauses are know what they are? What are the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause? Of course, and you're right, that's absolutely where we should begin. The Establishment Clause says that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. In 1947, in Everson versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court said, that this also applies to state and local governments. The other provision in the First Amendment, the Free Exercise Clause, says that Congress shall make no law abridging free exercise of religion. And in 1940, in Cantwell versus Connecticut, the Supreme Court said this applies to state and local governments. These are the two key provisions that protect religious freedom in the United States. And I know that, you know, probably my first time ever thinking about the separation between church and state, and granted I was the child of two lawyers, was when I was in school, and this is the 1980s, there was not a prayer that we opened up with, but we started off every day reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, including the clause, one nation under God, indivisible. And I remember being a very small child and thinking, you know, why do we why do we bring up God here? So if you were explaining to people, particularly what happened in schools when it came to the interpretation of what these two clauses mean and how we should separate church and state when it comes to public schools, where would you kind of begin that explanation or discussion? One thing we try to do in the book is cover the concerns that the framers had as they were envisioning what kind of new republic they wanted to build, they had experienced for the century and a half before the creation of the Constitution, out of their political heritage, unbelievable turmoil and violence associated with the effort on the part of the government to require everyone to be faithful to the one true religion. These religious wars had a deep effect on the founding generation. By the time you got to the constitutional, uh, the creation of the constitution, the framers had moved toward a vision of a republic that would be secular in its essence and tolerant of many, many different religious faiths. The constitution remarkably makes no reference to a deity. It gives Congress no power whatsoever to pass laws regarding religion. It indicates there should be no religious test of office. So the starting point of understanding this idea of a wall of separation is that while people should be free in their private capacity to worship as they will, the government was not just going to be a neutral with respect to various uh, faith traditions, but it itself would also be secular. And so when you, when you think about the time when you would start a public school day with a, a Christian prayer, that obviously is inconsistent with that fundamental tenet. So you start there, and then you begin to imagine, are there some circumstances where there are aspects of American history where references to a deity is, is part of the landscape? And no one is expecting that you can never teach 
for example, school children about the Gettysburg Address if Lincoln makes reference to a deity. But we do think that in its official activities, the government itself has to remain secular and neutral with respect to all faith traditions. And Erwin, I thought it was very interesting. You laid out broadly four different approaches that can be taken when it comes to how to interpret these two clauses using the ideas of separation versus accommodation. So looking at the establishment clause with the view of separation or the free exercise clause with the view of accommodation. Can you please explain that framework to my listeners? Of course. Let me start with the establishment clause. One way of viewing it, and it's the way that Howard and I defend, is it should be seen as separating church and state. The idea with that is that the government should be secular, that the place for religion is in people's own daily lives, their homes, their churches, their synagogues, their mosques. But the contrary position is the accommodation position that says we should accommodate religion into government and government support for religion. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning in terms of a shift on the Supreme Court, that for decades, the justices subscribed to the separationist view, but now there's a majority that believes in the accommodationist approach. To make this less abstract, separationists don't want religious symbols on government property. Accommodationists see no problem. Separationists don't want to see a religious presence at public activities, like prayer in public schools. Accommodationists have no problem with that. Separationists say the government shouldn't be subsidizing religious schools. Accommodationists say to deny aid to parochial schools itself violates the Constitution. Well, you can see that same duality with regard to the free exercise clause. Separationists would say we don't create exceptions from general laws on account of religion. We don't want to go down the path of deciding what is a religion. We don't want to go down the path of deciding when those with religious beliefs should get exceptions. We don't want to go the path of allowing people to injure others in the name of their religion. But the accommodationists say we should accommodate religion and we should therefore allow people to have exceptions from general laws. Again, to make it less abstract, imagine a baker or a florist that doesn't want to serve a same-sex wedding. The separationists would say the laws prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation are general. There's no basis for religious exception. Stopping discrimination is a compelling government interest. On the other hand, the accommodation would say we should accommodate religion and allow a religious exception and allow people for their religious beliefs to refuse to serve the gay and lesbian couples. The other thing that really struck me was your argument at the very end of the book where you felt it was important to have an entire chapter called Why Separation is Not Hostility. And that's you know, not what you are arguing for in this book, The Religion Clauses. Could you elaborate a little more on why you know, this idea of having a separation attitude is not hostility towards religion? We hear that complaint uh, a lot. There is a sense that um, if you take prayer out of public school, you're demonstrating hostility to religious practices. If you don't allow religious bakers and florists to discriminate against same-sex couples, for example, you're not sufficiently respecting uh, their views. Most of the arguments about how that exhibits hostility assume we think 
that certain religious practices should have a privileged position within the political system. That it should be the case that traditional Protestant religious practices can be celebrated by the government. And so when those historic practices are ended, it feels like a loss. It feels like hostility. You know, our view is all we are asking for is that the government remain neutral and secular and that it puts religious people on the same plane as everyone else in the country. So we think we are arguing for fairness and neutrality and equality. And sometimes people who have a sense of loss about their their prior privileges or position in the political system thinks sometimes they experience that as hostility rather than as just the resumption of what we think is a general sense of uh, fairness. So we wanted to write the last chapter, especially to underscore that if you think about commitment to religion as a commitment to the great diversity of religious practices, to, to the wonderful kaleidoscope of activity that we have in this country with religious practices that the framers couldn't even envision and that they all deserve equal respect within the political system, then we think this separationist approach is obviously the one that is most consistent with respect for that great diversity and pluralism of religious practices. To bring up a case that I think might be where people most recently have paid the most attention to this dichotomy, the Hobby Lobby case. I know that just as an individual American, when I heard about this argument that by providing health insurance that included benefits for contraception, the Hobby Lobby owners felt that their civil rights and their religious beliefs were being violated. I know that my first reaction was, but don't those religious rights and religious beliefs belong to the person receiving the health care? Wouldn't it be the workers' religious beliefs that mattered in the situation? And so I guess I'm just asking, how did the Supreme Court parse this in the Hobby Lobby case? And do you feel like there were any flaws in their reasoning? I should begin by saying that Hobby Lobby actually didn't involve the Constitution. It's a misunderstanding about the case. It involved a federal statute the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it says if the federal government substantially burdens religion, its action is invalid unless it's necessary to serve a compelling government purpose. Hobby Lobby was a five to four decision. It involved two companies that refused to provide health insurance benefits for women employees that included contraceptive coverage. Rules adopted under the Affordable Care Act required that employers provide insurance for women employees that included the kinds of contraceptives and approved for the FDA. Justice Alito wrote, joined by the four conservative justices, and he said, to force the companies to provide insurance benefits when it violates the owner's religious beliefs is a substantial burden on their religion. And he said, this wasn't sufficient to meet the test. It wasn't necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. Now, I should also say, his opinion was limited to family-held corporations. He wasn't dealing with large, publicly traded corporations. Justice Ginsburg wrote a terrific dissent, and one that Howard and I very much agree with. And to answer your specific question, I think she does a great job of pointing out the flaws in Justice Alito's reasoning. She notes that no employer was required to use or refrain from using contraceptives. 
all the employer was doing was providing an insurance benefit and women could decide for themselves. Yet there's really no stopping point to Justice Alito's reasoning. Could an employer say, I'm not gonna allow you to use your income from my workplace to buy pork products because it violates my religious beliefs? Wouldn't that be the logical conclusion from Justice Alito's approach? And isn't that one we'd never want to accept? But even apart from that, what Justice Ginsburg said that I think is right, is there is a compelling interest in making sure that women have access to contraceptives. There's a fundamental constitutional right to have access to contraceptives. And the government here was facilitating that and that should be enough to require that employers provide insurance that includes contraceptive coverage. And Lee, an important part of the framework that was put together by the Affordable Care Act was that when you were talking about actual religious institutions engaged in the advancement of religion, they did receive an exception from the requirements. So you, you were not going to require the Catholic Church in its health benefits for its employees as a church to also provide uh, contraceptive care. So that wasn't at issue. And Erwin and I agree that there is a level of protection around actual church autonomy that could be recognized uh, in some cases. The issue in this case is when you move to general public accommodations and just activity in commerce in general, and it just so happens that the owner of a particular business has a religious objection, then does their religious objection mean that they can be immune from these uh, requirements. And we think that goes too far. Now, this book was released by Oxford University Press as part of a series called the Inalienable Rights Series. Could you talk a little bit about that series and why you felt you wanted to be involved in it? It's a terrific series edited by University of Chicago law professor Jeffrey Stone, and it explores various aspects of rights under the Constitution. It's had so many prestigious authors. I know the next volumes to be printed in the series are by former Harvard Law School Dean Martha Minow and Harvard Law Professor Cass Sunstein. And so it's really an honor for us to have this book published in this very prominent series. And The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State is available now. Uh, it, is, it is out there. But are there any other foundational texts that any of my readers, after having read your book, and just so my listeners know, you know, this is not a long or or heavy tome. You know, I think this is a really good, it goes beyond just a, a bare introduction to the, the issues, but it's not hugely long. If they were interested in reading more about these issues, are there any recommended books you have? I would recommend Marcy Hamilton's book, God Versus the Gavel, and it's now in a second edition. And she picks up many of the same themes we do, though there's substantial differences in coverage as well as approach. One thing that uh, if you get interested in this topic, you will find uh, an avalanche of material, which is good. But if you're trying to orient yourself to these questions, it's very difficult uh, to plow your way through the extraordinary work that's done by historians and constitutional law professors. There's just so much uh, out there. We wanted in this book to stake out a very specific argument, but we also wanted to introduce the topic to people. So if you want to learn about the founders' debates, instead of reading many massive volumes one after the other, 
we can give you the overview in about 20 pages. If you want to learn about the various approaches that the court has taken to establishment of free exercise, we think we can give you that primer in a chapter each. So, so we hope that it's the kind of book that gets you into the debates and then can get you more interested in delving even more deeply. And like you said, this is an ongoing debate. If someone, after reading your book and hearing your arguments, thinks to themselves, yes, this is actually the approach that I'd like our courts to take, that I'd like our governments to take, do you have any suggested actions that someone as an American citizen could could take? What can they be doing in their communities to encourage this? There are wonderful organizations working hard on these issues in taking positions like those that Howard and I argue for. Obviously, the American Civil Liberties Union, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, to just mention a few. I always believe people are most effective in working through organizations, and these are organizations at the forefront of these issues. Beyond that, you can win an argument, you can win a theoretical argument in a conversation, but ultimately, the direction of constitutional law is going to come down to who has a majority on the Supreme Court. We've noticed and um, review over the last few years how increasing numbers of conservative appointments uh, have moved the court in a direction that we think is not the best way to go. And that's because people who are looking to ensure that there is an ongoing accommodation of religion have prioritized this in politics. And there's a very tight connection, especially between Christian conservatives and the Republican Party. These are now five to four decisions uh, across the line. And depending on, for example, who wins the next presidential election, that will deeply influence for how many uh, years or decades the court might move in one direction or another. Well, Howard and Irwin, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. In addition to picking up your book, The Religion Clauses, The Case of Separating Church and State, how else could people reach out to you to discuss these issues further? Well, the nice thing about being a chancellor and a dean is that it's hard to hide. Uh, and uh, so you, if you just, um, you know, chancellor at uci.edu uh, is a start. And Erwin, my guess is that you have an easy email uh, as well. It's just echemerinsky at berkeley.edu. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service.